Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. The Bible is a remarkable book, although written thousands of years ago, it transcends all cultures, all stratas of society, all ages and all generations. However, we must acknowledge that it was written with an Eastern mindset. Living in those days, they saw things through Eastern eyes. And the writers would use illustrations and idioms that were easy for them to understand because they lived with them every day. Cultural habits, traditions, customs, and laws were familiar to the hearers and to the readers. And for this reason... We Westerners often miss the nuances uh, of Scripture. And sometimes we just don't quite get what the writer was trying to say. And a case in point I want to share with you today is the bridegroom and his bride. Now the bridegroom and his bride is such a powerful image of Christ and his church that it would be helpful to us to understand the customs and the habits of a simple thing like a Bible in, like a wedding in Bible days, which is vastly different than our Western weddings. And so, for this message this morning, I am indebted to a number of the insights from a man called Clifford Hill, uh, who happened to has conducted over 70 trips to Israel. And so he knows a thing or two about customs. And he, among other, I have gleaned uh, some of these insights from. Now let me begin by saying this morning, although it was quite normal for Jewish men to be married to one wife, and although there was no upper age limit to that, a man could marry as old as, as he wanted to marry. Yet, Jesus went back to heaven as a single man. He went back to heaven as a single man. It was unusual for a rabbi to be single. But he went back to heaven as a single man. In spite of what modern secular novel writers like Dan Brown and others would try to contend that Jesus either married Mary Magdalene or had some romantic liaison with her, another woman. But we know that is definitely not the case. That is completely untrue. The fact is, he went back to heaven a single man. And the reason for that is very, very simple. Because his bride was not ready yet. His bride was not ready yet. We are the bride of Christ and we're not quite ready yet. fact is, we are betrothed 
to Christ. And one day, and we believe that it will be one day very soon, he is coming back to claim us as his eternal bride. Now let me take you through the process of betrothal and the wedding. And hopefully in doing so we will look at certain scriptures and perhaps see them in a new light and maybe they will make a little bit more sense for us. Now marriages were usually arranged by both sets of parents and the perspective young couple were informed after the arrangements were made. Now right away we would be aghast at the thought of somebody arranging our marriage without us maybe never even meeting our prospective husband or wife. But in Eastern countries today, and Asian countries particularly, that is still fashionable. Now just a few years ago, we had a young couple in this church, young Indian couple, some of you remember, Jensen and Busy. And they moved away to Scotland. Jensen and Busy were an arranged marriage. They told me that uh, their parents arranged their marriage. And they had quite a good and happy marriage. They, and in fact, they couldn't understand how people could arrange to meet themselves and get married because that was not their custom and habit. They just found that foreign to their thinking. Their thinking was, our parents arranged it, fine, wonderful, let's get on with it. And uh, the love part will come later. We'll have a relationship and then we'll fall in love. That was, that was how they felt and that worked really well for them. Now, I know what you're thinking, that wouldn't work for us. Well, there was, in those days there was none of this, hey mom and dad, I've just got engaged. <laughs> there was none of that. Or can I have your daughter's hand in marriage, which would be much more preferable for us actually than hey mom and dad, I've just got engaged. But there was none of that either. And so when an arrangement was arrived at, the betrothal took place. And it was a binding agreement. Now even though it be maybe something similar to our engagement before marriage, but it was much more binding than that. It was legal. You were married in a sense, and yet the marriage was not consummated. But legally, you were as good as married. And to get out of that, was a difficult job. Bill of divorcement would have to be drawn up. Uh, you remember how that whenever Mary and Joseph, how they were betrothed to be married. And whenever he found out that she was pregnant, at that time before the angel came to him, his only natural thought would be, she has been unfaithful to me. But because he loved her, he decided he would put her away privately to save all the shame and embarrassment that would happen. But of course that didn't happen because the angel came and said, it's okay to take her to be your wife, and so forth. And so this betrothal, this agreement between the two sets of parents, particularly between the father of the bride-to-be and the father of the husband-to-be, the bridegroom-to-be, when that took place, uh, then a payment or a dowry would have to be made uh, in respect of the young woman. Because a young woman leaving her father's house, she would be a worker. She would be a good worker in her father's house. And he was going to lose all that labor that he would have had in her father's house. So uh, a dowry would have to be made. And that dowry would in effect seal the deal. Whatever arrangement they came to, whatever price they arrived at, whatever deal they 
uh, finally finalized on, that would seal the deal. At that point, they were as good as married. Now, this money would be held in trust by the bride-to-be's father. And this capital would be kept in trust so that if, through her husband's death or his separation from her, uh, she would have something to fall back upon and live upon. Now, the Apostle Paul was the one who particularly, and we just read his writings there at the start, who particularly uh, liked to use the image of a bridegroom and a bride to illustrate Christ and his church. In 2 Corinthians 11 and 2, he writes, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I might present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And then, of course, again in Ephesians uh, 5, uh, at every, of course, every marriage ceremony, uh, we read this. I'll read it again. Verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. And then he goes on down, to, and further on down to say in verse 32, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And so, Paul was the one who highlighted this relationship. And then in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, he writes, In whom you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed. There's that term again. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. This is betrothal language. And Paul will be aware that his readers would be very familiar with what he's saying. They would get it immediately what he's trying to say because they would be familiar with the terms. Then in verse 30 of Ephesians 4, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This too is betrothal language. You see, when you become born again, at that moment you're born again of God's Spirit. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. He is the guarantee. He is the down payment. And the other verse where it says, the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee uh, the word there is the same word that we get earnest money from. A down payment, if you will. The guarantee. And the fact that you and I have the Holy Spirit residing within us is the guarantee that we are betrothed to Christ, that he will come back for us, that he will claim us as his own. He has not returned yet. But we are confident because of the Holy Spirit within us. That's our witness that he will return for us. That's our guarantee that he's going to come back for us one day. 
And so this is all the language of betrothal. Now the bride's father would also provide a gift for his daughter. Like a going away present, as it were. And this dowry, it could be money, it could be lands, it could be even servants if he was very rich. But more often than not, it was much more simple than that. It would be a little band with ten silver coins that she would wear on her forehead and would be very proud and pleased to wear that. It would be a reminder that her father loved her and that when she would leave the house that she would wear this little ten silver coin little strip across her forehead and she'd be delighted to wear such a thing. And I, of course, whenever you read about that, Luke 15, about that lovely little trilogy of parables about the lost sheep and the lost silver and the lost son. Whenever you read about the lost silver, it says in Luke 15, verse 8, or that woman, or what woman, sorry, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light the lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which was lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in heaven in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. So now you understand why the woman would make such a fuss over one little silver coin because that was part of her father's dowry to her, to her as she would lay the family home. So all of these things uh, begin to make a little bit more sense whenever we understand the customs and the habits. Now betrothal lasted, it could last up to about one year. Sometimes it would be shorter than that, a few months. But it could last actually up to about one year. And... During this particular year, a couple of things would begin to take place. First of all, for the bridegroom-to-be. Knowing that in a matter of months or up to one year, that he would have his bride, and he would be bringing his bride from her home to his house. Actually, more accurately, to his father's house. And so what he would do at his father's house, he would build an extension to his father's house for her and for him to be together. And so that makes much more sense of John 14, doesn't it? Where Jesus said, in my father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a room for you. And if I go to prepare a room for you, I will come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So right now, Christ is preparing for us a room at his Father's house for you to go and live with him eternally forever. And he's preparing that. So that's good to look forward to, isn't it? That's something for us in the future. And so, while this was happening, she would be doing something as well. She would be making herself ready. 
Now this would be an important thing for her to do. Because she would want to look her absolute best for when that day would come, when he would come for her to be his bride. And so during this period, whether it be months or up to a year, she would take this period of time and she would do everything in her power to make herself ready. Now, understand that during this whole year, if it was a full year, understand that they would not see one another. They would not be like a formal courtship as we would have. And so the longing and expectation must have been great. Particularly if they hadn't met. Now the chances are that they had met. The chances are the two families were well acquainted with one another. But even if they weren't, think about it. For at least up to a year they would not even meet under any circumstances. And so they must have been both wondering, I wonder what they're like. I wonder what their personality is like. I wonder how beautiful or how handsome they are. Now, of course, we don't even begin to understand a situation like that in our Western world, but that's what it was like for them in that day. So there must have been some longing and some expectation that was going on because they haven't seen so 1 Peter 1 and 8, Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do you wonder what he's like? Well, during this period of waiting... This is why we should be in this book. This is why we should be in prayer. This is why we should be in relationship with him in our prayers and in our thoughts towards him to find out everything we can about him. To get to know his nature and his character. And that's going to be a tremendous help. Something else that should get our attention. <clears throat> the marriage day... The actual day was determined by the father of the bridegroom-to-be. It wasn't determined by the bridegroom-to-be, but by his father. He alone knew the day. He alone set the date. Now, isn't it amazing how over the years that people Religious people has tried to date set when Christ was coming back. Jehovah's Witnesses particularly over the years have set many dates, all of which has failed completely. But that has not stopped them resetting a date through another prophet. We saw last year, 2011, in America, it was all over the news, even here, how that one particular old television preacher had set the date for Christ's return. Uh, at least twice, perhaps three times, he set the date. And of course, every time was wrong. 
And it's unfortunate that he did that because then it became a laughing stock. People began to scoff at the very idea, as Peter said they would. And it's unfortunate in that case because that man started out as orthodox as an evangelical preacher who got obsessed with when Christ was coming back to the point where he began to set dates. And yet Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, where he was talking about his return, Matthew 24, 36, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but my Father only. So let not be caught up in date setting. There's lots of talk today, because it's 2012, about the Mayan calendar. 21st of December, the world is going to change. It's going to change forever. It's going to be the end of the world as we know it, according to these Mayan Indians who lived in South America all those years ago. And of course, there's much money to be made from it. Books are flowing, no doubt. Things will be written, and people will cash in on it. The 21st of December, 2012, will come and it will go. Except and unless the Lord does come on that day. <laughs> but not the Mayans or the JWs or anybody else, including us, or even the very angels in heaven will know that day. And so the wedding. On that specific day when the Father had arranged for the wedding to take place, and it would usually happen this way, that somewhere between sunset, about six o'clock in the evening, and between that and midnight, in fact the word midnight here means the middle of the night, so it could be 12 o'clock or it could be three in the morning. But somewhere between six in the evening and say midnight or the middle of the night, the bridegroom would begin his journey to the bride's house. And he'd have with him what was called the friend of the bridegroom. What we would say is the best man. And the friend of the bridegroom would come with the bridegroom-to-be and he would have other young attendants with him, like groomsmen, we would say. And as they start out on their journey, particularly at evening time, when it was dark with their torches, and it would not be a quiet procession, a lot of noise would be made, there'd be great rejoicing because he was going for his bride and people would come out of their homes and they'd begin to join in because everybody loves a happy occasion and so this would be a great procession would come to the house of the bride-to-be. Imagine all those months of waiting the bride-to-be making herself ready because she didn't know the day or the hour when he would come, so she would have to be ready. She'd have to be ready. At last the bridegroom would come to her house and then the friend of the bridegroom would shout, Behold, the bridegroom comes! Go you out to meet him. <laughs> she would be inside. Of course she had heard the commotion. She would know what was happening. He's coming for me. And she'd be ready. 
Be ready every night. Bathed, washed, clothed, ready. And she heard that shout. <laughs> Behold, the bridegroom has come. Go out to meet him. Now, of course, she would have her attendants, just the way a bride today would have her bridesmaids. And they were called the virgins. Remember the parable Jesus told about the ten virgins? How five were wise and five were foolish? How that they would join in the procession now when the two, when the couple would go back to the father's house and how that the, the young woman, the virgins, how they would have their lamps to join in the procession because it's night time and they would have to do a a torch dance when they would get to the father's house to rejoice. And how that five of them were wise and they had made sure they had plenty of oil to keep the lamps burning, these torches. But five were foolish and they didn't bring enough oil with them. And as their lamps were going out, they said to the other five were wise, give us some oil, we haven't enough oil. And they said, no, we can't do that because then we won't have enough oil. And how then they went to find some more oil at that time of night, which wouldn't be easy. And by the time they found it and came back to the father's house, the door was closed and they couldn't get in. And Jesus gave a great warning in that parable about being ready. Being ready. The Son of Man comes at an hour that you do not be ready. Be ready. Make sure there's oil in your lamp. Make sure that you are well prepared. I notice here, that it's the bride that waits for his coming. Our Western weddings, it's the bridegroom waits for the bride to come. It's the total opposite in the Bible. And we're waiting for his coming. It's taken 2,000 years. But the Bible says one day is just thousand years is one day with God so it's, time means nothing but the church has to be making herself ready waiting for that day when we hear the call behold the bridegroom comes go you out to meet him tradition had it that the bridegroom didn't cross the doorstep of her house at this time she had to come out and meet him the next time he comes to her home, she'll be with him as his bride. But not this time. Not at this moment. When Christ comes for us this time, we will go out to meet him in the rapture. I'm a preacher who still believes in the rapture. I know that it's Many doesn't believe in it, and that's up to them. I, I happen to believe in the rapture of the church. Credible as it seems. And we will go out to meet him in the air. But when he returns to this, our home here now, the next time we will be with him because we'll be his bride and we will return with him. Are you still with me?
So there's a difference between the rapture and the return. The rapture is when he comes in the air, the return when he comes to the earth. And then the bridegroom would never even meet his bride at the door. When she came to the door, she'd have a veil on. And he would lift the veil and he'd put it on his shoulder. <clears throat> Filipinos, by the way, they have a, a veil ceremony in their weddings. It's a beautiful thing. I've seen it a few times. It's beautiful. And then the people who were standing witnessing this, you know what they would cry? The government shall be upon his shoulder. Isaiah 9 and 6. It's a scripture we always read at Christmas time, isn't it? His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and of the increase of his government there shall be no end. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And I know the wider picture can be talking about the nations of the earth one day will be under his government, and that will be true. But in this instance, it's his government of his wife, his care, his protection, his provision shall be upon his shoulder. <clears throat> and then after that, the whole procession, the bride and groom, friends of the bridegroom and the bridesmaids, they'd all make their way back to the Father's house <clears throat> where a great supper would be prepared. Not a dinner, but a supper. It's night time now. And a great supper would be prepared. In Revelation chapter 19. <clears throat> verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, the sound of many waters, and the sound of a mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous act of the saints. And he said to me, Right blessed are they, those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. <laughs> That's going to be some supper, isn't it? That's going to be some supper. We'll not just be the guests. We'll be the bride. We'll be the head table with the bridegroom. <laughs> That's something to look forward to, isn't it? Now let me begin to wrap up. I said a little bit earlier when we talked about the bride making preparation. I would come back to that. <clears throat> and that scripture we have read twice now in Ephesians 5, that he may sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he may present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now here is the preparation. 
not having spot or wrinkle. The word spot here means stain or moral blemish. The Lord is coming back for a holy bride-to-be. Not an unholy one. A holy one. A clean one. Without moral blemish. So it behoves us, does it not, to try to keep our lives clean and pure. Not easy when you live in a cesspool of this world. But that's the goal. That's the goal. Without spot or wrinkle. The word wrinkle is only found once here. So in other words, we are to be washed and ironed. <laughs> straightened. Upright. That's what the goal is. Without blemish. The word that was used here was speaking of the Old Testament sacrifices. The Old Testament sacrifices, every one of them was to be without blemish. If there was a blemish on it, couldn't be given unto the Lord as a sacrifice. Had to be inspected minutely to see that it was without blemish before it could be offered as a sacrifice unto the Lord. Peter applies this to Christ as our sacrificial lamb, does he not? In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. Well, verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. <coughs> Classical writers used this word, amomos, which was without blemish. They used it for the sense of being blameless both morally and religiously. And in Jude chapter 20, verse 24 of Jude, translates, translates as faultless. Where he will present us faultless before the Father's throne. So you get the picture that when Christ comes for us, that how long that may be, we don't know. We believe it will be soon. But however long it may be, that every single day we are to be in preparation, we are to be getting ourselves ready to be caught up to be with him in the air. Not to be caught on, but to be caught up. And whenever we know who we're going to meet, all the more reason, all the more motivation to get ourselves ready. Amen. Now I'm going to close with this. It relates to a wedding. Another parable in Matthew 22. Jesus again speaking regarding his return. 
Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son, sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Now you have to understand that invitations were sent out, and there's a preliminary invitation sent out way, way, way ahead of the wedding. With no date set, no time set, just that there's a wedding coming up, you are invited, having got that particularly from a king, then you were in a state of readiness, whenever that would be, whenever the date would be sent, because then a second invitation would be sent with the date on it, now the time has come, and of course you would be fully expected to comply with it, particularly if it's an invitation by the king for his son's wedding. And so, the preliminary invitation went out, so they knew the wedding was coming up, and they were invited then, they were called, the servants called those who were invited to the wedding, so this is the second call, and they were not willing to come. There was an unwillingness for them to come. When God invites man to come to his son, all kinds of excuses are made. The bottom line is, if you don't go, it's because you are unwilling to come. That's the bottom line. For years and for years and for years, I was unwilling to come. I knew I was invited, but I was unwilling to come. I had all kinds of excuses, but the bottom line was, I was unwilling. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, my and fat cattle are killed. All things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it. There's many today who makes light of it. They laugh. They joke about it. They trivialize it. They said it's a lot of nonsense. All this business of being born again and becoming a Christian is a lot of nonsense. Make light of it. We have comedians on televisions making light of Jesus and the church and Christ. They won't make light of Muhammad. I haven't got the guts to do that. But they make light of Christ and his church. And so they said they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And so some just doesn't care. They just want to get on with their lives. No interest. Business to take care of. Family to take care of. This to do, that to do. And the rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. So there's some that it's not just a joke. It's not just I don't care. There's some is I'm against you. And I'll kill you. There's more martyrs for Christ today than there's ever been in the history of the church. There's more people dying today for Christ's sake than all of Christian history and lands all over the world. Or if you become a Christian, your own family will kill you. They will kill you and take pleasure in it and think they're doing their God a favor. They call it honor killing. So, when the king heard about it, he was furious. 
sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burnt up their city. And he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. By the way, there is a bigger picture to this. And I haven't time to go into all this about the Jews and how they refused Christ, and how Titus came in A.D. 70 and destroyed Jerusalem and so forth and so on. That's the bigger picture. But I'm just telling you from this other spiritual picture. So the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all they could find, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests, people from every strata of society. And when the king came in to see the guests, now notice this, this is what I really want to come to as we end. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Now those who were quite wealthy, when guests were invited to the wedding, and this was a wealthy and this was a king, they would give their guests wedding garments. People would be coming from all kinds of backgrounds, some rich, some poor. But they'd all be given these beautiful wedding garments by the, the groom-to-be's father. He would be the host. And of course, you would be delighted to wear it. It would be beautiful. Probably the best garment you'd ever had on your back in your life. And also, all the guests would be seated and the host would come in last. He would make his entrance last. And so, the king comes in. But he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? Because there'd be people standing outside before you'd get in through the door who'd be standing with wedding garments, giving you a wedding garment. So you couldn't just make a mistake here. This was deliberate. How come you're in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. He had no answer to give. He deliberately came into that wedding thinking that his own robes would be enough. That his own robes would cover him that his own rose would be good enough for this king's wedding feast. But he found out pretty quickly that it wasn't good enough. And our own robes are not good enough for God. The Bible says all our own righteousness are as filthy rags in God's sight. So anything we are or we do is never going to be good enough for God. That's why he has to give us his righteousness and we get his righteousness through his son dying on the cross for us. So we put on his righteousness. That's the robes that we're fitted with. Nothing to do with us. We couldn't provide them, but God provided them through his son. They were a gift to us. And he was speechless. He was robeless. Now he's speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him, 
hand and foot. Now he's helpless. Bind him hand and foot. Take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Mm, it's a somber ending, isn't it? But this wedding is a serious business. And the Son of God is coming back for his bride to take us home. And only those who are prepared will go. Did you ever think about his coming? Has ever a thought in your mind? Unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Unto them that look for him. Are we looking for him? I guarantee you, when you're about to get married and there's maybe weeks left or months left, you're looking to that day, you're preparing for it, you're busy, busy, busy. It's all you're thinking about. Every waking hour you're thinking about it. This is why continually I've got to share with you and remind you that the Lord is coming back because if I don't, you'll not be thinking about it much. But the scripture tells us to think about it and prepare for it and be ready for it so that when he does come and the call goes up, bridegroom comes, go out to meet him, we'll be ready and we'll be expecting him to come. And he is coming and he could come at any moment of any day. We don't know when, so we've got to be ready. And I want to have my wedding garments on. Amen. Don't you? I want to be ready. Glory to God. Let's pray. <clears throat>